podcast about the intersection between humans and technology. My name is Guthrie, and I am uh, here to talk about all things science and tech. I have Susan with me. Hello, Susan. Hello. And a very special guest today. Susan, I'm going to let you do the introductions. Okay. This time. Okay. And that's because um, it's a Norwegian name and you think I will do a better job at it than you will, which may not, might not be true. But we have a guest with us, Ilva Atsby, um, and she is a clinical neuropsychologist uh, and a postdoctoral researcher at, um, in Oslo, Norway. Uh, and what's the official university name? Is it University of Oslo or? Yes, okay. it's University of Oslo. Okay. And um, and I'm excited about about talking to you, Ilva, because uh, you and your sister, right? Is it your yes. sister, uh, Hild- yeah. Hilda, who who together wrote a book? And um, give us the title of the book. It's called Adventures in Memory. Adventures science, in Memory. The science and secrets of remembering and forgetting. Yeah. So, I. You know, first of all, it I think, and you probably get this question all the time because I think it's a little unusual to write a book with your sister. Um, mm-hmm. And then, of course, you know, I I think writing a book on memory is a great idea, and um, so so I'm fascinated, and I want to talk to you about that. Um, you know, it, it's there's so much research on memory, and yet um, of which I. I've read a lot. I'm sure you've read more, even more. Uh, but when people ask, have in the past, have asked me, you know, can you recommend, you know, a book on memory that would be for someone who is, you know, not a uh, PhD psychologist, you know, studying memory, but also not just, you know, a uh, a lay person, but something in between, you know, people who are interested in memory, people who are interested in cognitive psychology, um, you know, people who are interested in human factors, but might not be experts on memory. I haven't had, you know, a, a book that I could recommend to them because as far as I know, a lot of the books on memory are, you know, quite academic and very technical. So, um, and maybe I just, you know, am not up on memory books, but I, is that one reason why you, you wrote this book was to fill that gap? Yes, definitely. We wanted to convey as much of this way so that a lot of people could be as fascinated about memory as we were, and also kind of uh, to, to look beyond the traditional how to improve your memory view, which is quite predominant, I think. Uh, so, so that was our main motivation to, to reach out and, uh, and also perhaps ins- instill more humility when it comes to understanding our memory and what we can expect from it. So when you talk about um, understanding memory, what are what's like the target people? I mean, are we talking uh, master master memorizers, the everyday person on the street? Um, what it what does that what do you, what does that mean? 
Yes, we want to reach uh, every every kind of person on the street, actually. That's our greatest <laughs> goal, <laughs> but it's very difficult, of course. Uh, so we've had some great uh, reception of our book here in Norway, uh, that it is read by uh, young people down to 14 years old and up to uh, people of 80 and 90 years. Uh, and both people who are uh, into memory science a little bit and people who have no idea whatsoever are enjoying the book. So, so I think that makes us very happy that we kind of uh, reach a wide audience. Uh, and I think that is because uh, it is not written like a standard textbook. Uh, I wrote this with my sister, who is a writer uh, who, who writes um, uh, yeah, she writes books uh, uh, and novels, and so her expertise in in uh, making great stories uh, makes all the science come to life uh, in a way that I, I for one, could not do myself. So, what what kind of stories? So it's, it's sort of, sort of like like you you're busy reading science articles, and and she's she's kind of putting it together in a in a fun way that people would like to read? Is that kind of the, the dynamic? Uh, well, uh, both that and, uh, yeah, we were, uh, we were both writing. So uh, it's both me and my sister who is writing the book. Uh, and it's both me and my sister who are discussing topics and the science and asking questions uh, and uh, uh, making some of these experiments come to life. I, I can imagine yeah. there were a lot of, uh, well, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but I could just imagine some tense conversations where you would write <laughs> something and she would go, no one's going to understand what that means. And you'd Definitely. say, I have <laughs> stated it very clearly and very accurately, right? Yes, that's exactly how it went. <laughs> <laughs> I only say that because I mean I have I have two sisters and I have not written any books with them, but I've written several books um, uh, with one particular um, developmental editor, uh, Jeff Riley, who's a wonderful uh, editor, and and you know so many of our conversations with him saying you know no one's going to understand what you mean by that, and I'm like. Of course they will. It's very clear. And he's like, no, it's not clear. And you need more examples. And I would just be like, ah. <laughs> yes, yes it's, uh, you can never underestimate how poorly you explain things. <laughs> and, and also, uh, not just the explaining part, but also the kind of questions that we ask and the kind of um, things that we find interesting. Uh, because after studying memory and neuroscience for so many years, I kind of get uh, stuck in these particular topics and these particular ways of looking at things mm. uh, and kind of forget some of the more, uh, yeah, some, some of the existential questions and uh, some other perspectives that I haven't thought about for a long time. So uh, she was the one who could really bring these issues to the forefront and make this book more uh, yeah, more, 
yeah, more existential and more uh, alive and more uh, fun and uh, all these things. And well, it was well, you... also uh, she who suggested that we actually should recreate some of these experiments that we did uh, for the book, uh, like the experiment with the divers that go uh, deep into the Oslo fjord in the middle of winter to try to memorize the random lists of words. You want to explain that one? That <laughs> yeah, because this, this was, of course, common knowledge to me that this there was this very famous memory experiment that was conducted in 1975 by uh, Alan Badley and one of his colleagues, Graham Hitch. Um, and um, um, no, no. Uh, now I misremembered. I'm sorry. It was not Hitch. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Memory. Oh, it's so difficult. Um, <laughs> but anyway, they were sending these uh, divers into the water outside of Scotland in 1975. And they found out that when the divers were memorizing a list of words underwater, they remembered the list better when they were uh, tested on it also underwater as opposed to on land. And so this also is... vice versa. Have you heard of the... Um... I mean, I guess you probably have, but there's there's always the, uh, I guess it's the, the, there's so many American idioms here. I'm trying not to use an American idiom, but all I can think of. Okay, so first yeah, of all, sure. in, um, do you, over there, do you have the, the phrase, an old wives' tale? No. What's okay. that? <laughs> yeah, I have nothing but idioms, and I was like, oh, God. Okay, so it's basically like this um, kind of like this like advice you hear that's kind of mm -hmm. passed down from wherever, oh, right? Yeah, yes. That, 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 yeah. Like, that, like the old wives would say, but there's no actually evidence to back it up. Um, so, you know, there was always like the half joke, half not joke. Uh, when I was in college, in, um, in university, that when you... Um, you know, when you were studying, if you were drinking when you when you were studying, make sure you were drinking during the exam because you're not gonna you can you can remember it if you're like drunk in the same state. Now I don't think yeah. that works at all, but mm. is it it's but this experiment that's sort of like the same idea, yes. right? Exactly, it's called context-dependent memory, and it also applies to mental states, not just physical surroundings, uh, but. Uh, of course, the alcohol is uh, going to be detrimental to memory anyway, so it's not very advisable. <laughs> <like> a <laughs> it's a horrible idea. But of course, you could you could do some you could do it with other things. You could keep uh, certain items with you that you are also allowed allowed to take on an exam, for instance, or uh, small kind of uh, like a special lucky pen or something that will serve as a, a contextual cue. <laughs> Perhaps. Uh, what about what about food? So if I like am eating this a certain specific type of granola bar, should I like only eat that granola bar? Like so, if I had an exam mm -hmm. coming up, I only eat that granola bar when I'm studying for that mm -hmm. subject, and then in, it, I'm not sure yeah. if it would work at that. <laughs> if it would be that granular, um, so like uh, how much well, context do, do you need to transition into context-dependent memory? I think that uh, there needs to be a lot of context in order for it to override other kinds of uh, memory 
uh, networks because uh, there are uh, researchers who have tried to test this context effect in other situations in more like uh, ecologically valid situations, as you call it. Uh, they, they tested medical students, for instance, after having studied either in an auditorium or in the operating theater. Mm. And unfortunately, they did remember stuff in the operating theater that they had learned in the <laughs> auditorium. <laughs> Otherwise, it would be very impractical. So, uh, so when the the material that is to be learned is meaningful and as, is associated with uh, other meaningful stuff in your mind, uh, then that will override this context effect. Okay. So, so the reason uh, it works with the with the divers and and the nonsense lists of words is that uh, these lists of words are meaningless. And the only thing to associate them uh, uh, is the surroundings. Mm. Okay, no, that that actually makes a lot. So, of did sense. you guys recreate this then? Uh, yes, we did. We we got ten divers to perform this experiment <laughs> for us, <laughs> and uh, yeah, it was. Uh, I was astounded that they would do this uh, in the middle of winter, actually, here in Norway. But <laughs> they are. They are all year divers, so <laughs> so they thought it was a lot of fun. <laughs> and and but, what happened? Uh, yeah, we uh, we surprisingly we got the same results as uh, badly did in 1975. Uh, this was a slight uh, alteration of the design of the experiment, but still it was kind of conceptually the same. And uh, the divers who uh, who recalled on land uh, were so poor at their recall <laughs> skills in that situation as compared to a kind of we did the kind of baseline tests before they went into water and tested their memory so uh, so yeah it, it really worked and, uh, and that was um, uh, yeah that gave me a really good feeling because there's there has been a replication crisis in psychology and social sciences that you probably have heard of. Oh yeah, we could so, probably talk uh, about that for for a couple of hours because I actually yeah. uh, I like some of the uh, the refutation of the crisis calls. But anyway, without we if we go off Absolutely. into that if we go off into that <laughs> tangent, we may never come back. So was this recreating of the uh, badly experiment? Was that um, uh, initially Hilda's idea? Uh, absolutely, because I just uh, explained the experiment to her, and she said, "Oh, I know a diver." And <laughs> let's go do it. Ask her uh, if she would want to go into water and just uh, uh, experience how <laughs> the experiment would go. And uh, and then and then she said, uh, "Katerina was her name," and she said, "Well, how many divers do you need for this experiment?" And I'll organize that. <laughs> and I so, could just um, see, yeah. you know, the look on your face, kind of half amazement have horror you know oh. you're you're like going to do what so when you guys were growing up was she the one that was always like suggesting crazy activities for the two of you to do and you were the one that was like what absolutely <laughs> so this pattern has been around for many years that's what you're telling us absolutely. but she's four years older than me so ah. uh, she also had a lot of power over me all the time <laughs> So she was always she could just decide 
when we were playing that I would be this or that or yeah. All right, all right. Well, you know, this is good because um, I mean, Hilda was going to be with us today and couldn't be, but now that she's not here, this is good because we can talk about her and she can't defend herself. <laughs> so, what? What? Uh, tell tell us another thing um, that she uh, wanted to do with the book that you know initially perhaps you hadn't thought of or maybe you weren't even a fan fan of doing that ended up being in the book uh yes uh she was uh very good at finding angles and topics and uh of course i suggested people that we could talk to who were scientists uh but she very much found the important people who were not scientists who we interviewed for the book uh, like, for instance, uh, uh, we talked to uh, several people with memory loss uh, and amnesia. And, uh, and that was uh, also a bit difficult for me because uh, one of these was uh, someone who had been to me uh, at the hospital. Uh, and uh, before going through with interviewing her, we, of course, asked for uh, permission from the uh, from my superiors at the hospital, uh, but she was already um, a kind of public figure about her uh, memory loss at this stage. So, otherwise, I would not have allowed to to go through with that. Mm -hmm. But but she has some really amazing views on how to live with memory loss that is actually quite inspiring for people. So, uh, yeah, so I think it's very important that her story is coming through uh, in our book, uh, as well as other people who have some really personal stories to tell, uh, yeah. which, which people can relate to and understand. So, so yeah, go ahead, Catherine. Okay, so just, just to back up, for people who may not be, I mean, I think our audience is probably pretty varied. So, you know, I want to back up a little bit because I do want to talk about memory loss because it is obviously very important. But to get to memory loss, I think it would be useful to have some foundation about just what is memory mm -hmm. and then and then to, to kind of get to, well, what does it mean? What happens when, I mean, I know, and I know there's probably many different types, but um, then what, what kind of perhaps that we know of uh, is not working in the same way um, that then leads to memory loss. So if you, if you want to just back up and give like a little bit, like I, I think um, a lot of people who are probably listening just don't have an exact idea of even what memory is or how our brains do it. Yeah, uh, and scientists don't either. So <laughs> <laughs> it's, still, it's still really one of the greatest riddles of science. Uh, but of course, there are some basic stuff that we, do, we know by now that, okay. for instance, uh, the hippocampus in the brain is really, really vital to memory. And the hippocampus is a small structure within the temporal lobes of our brains uh, that is uh, kind of uh, uh, inside our heads at uh, a little bit above the level of our ears, if that makes sense. It makes all the sense in the world. Yeah. And uh, hippocampus is Latin for seahorse. So, uh, so that's why we have a seahorse on the cover of our book because huh. uh, it's such a, a beautiful name for a brain structure, and also a very nice metaphor for memory. So, 
So the hippocampus is vital for uh, transferring memory into long-term storage. So we have this uh, working memory that we use here and now, which allows us to, for instance, keep this conversation going when we're using our working memory. And we can use it for memorizing a phone number for a limited time, uh, these kinds of things. Uh, but of course, it is the long-term memory we think about most when we talk about memory. And, okay. and that is uh, some serious uh, thing <laughs> going on there. Uh, and we have, um, yeah, we have several types of long-term memory. So we have, um, we have our personal memories, which we call episodic memories. And uh, we have semantic memories, which are the facts, the things that we have to, to study for an exam, for instance. Uh, and we have implicit memory, which is memory for things that we don't have to consciously recall in order to show that we remember. Like, for instance, knowing how to ride a bike or uh, the way we rea react emotionally to things without thinking about why mm. we do so. It's interesting to think because, you know, I think a lot of times when you, I would consider that a habit. But it's yeah. interesting to think that it's actually really more like that there's a memory to that too. Like we're responding to the, to what previously happened. Okay. Do continue. Yeah. yeah because memory is, uh, something that is stored in our brain that makes us, uh, learn from the past. And that can be in the form of a habit, for instance, mm -hmm. it is something that is stored in our brain. Uh, yeah. So, uh, so the, uh, in the 1950s, it was discovered that the hippocampus was uh, so important for storing long-term memories. And that, uh, that mainly, or the, the breakthrough came uh, with the unfortunate story of H.M. or Henry Mollison, as he was later revealed to be named. Uh, and uh, within neuroscience, everyone has heard of H.M. He was kind of like a neuroscientific celebrity without even knowing it himself because um, at the age of 27 he lost his memory uh, for any new episodes in his life uh, after a surgery that was uh, meant to cure his epilepsy but instead cured him of memory so to speak <laughs> yeah uh, so that's uh, yeah, that that is very interesting. Um, I I have a question that maybe maybe you can help me with something. Are we going to do memory <laughs> therapy on the spot, Guthrie? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Good. <laughs> Let's is, do this it. This would be great. Okay. So but I want to see if you have any if you have any guesses as to what is wrong with me. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'll try. Good. That's all I ask. And I don't have any real answers, so okay, we're, yeah. we're, we're not putting you, you on the spot. That, please? <laughs> oh, I, just, I was just yeah. saying that I don't have any um, real answers. So there, there is no right or wrong. Mm -hmm. So there are some things that I have an amazing memory for. For example, you said you talked about facts. That, mm -hmm. that was one of the, uh, what was that type of memory called? Uh, semantic memory. S semantic memory. My semantic memory appears to be very good. So I can remember weird stuff like, you know, like the populations of cities or, um, you know, what 
like like about maybe not exactly but like about what your random things were invented and i'm very mm-hmm. good on a trivia team you know it, it, like i go to a bar and the trivia i'm usually pretty good at that stuff um but there are certain facts that i cannot remember for the life of me so for example if i'm at a if i'm at a room and there are a bunch of people right and you see and they're saying hi to people I cannot remember their names. Mm-hmm. If they tell me their name, especially uh, through audio, not not like writing it down, but if they tell me their name through audio, it is near impossible for me to remember their name at all. However, mm-hmm. if I make some sort of connection, so for example, if I put their name, um, if they if we exchange phone numbers, and they write their name somewhere or were connected on Facebook and there's a there's a connection from them to their name to then like how I communicate with them mm-hmm. then I can remember their first and last name forever wow that's fantastic yeah so uh so i i have a guess or two as mm-hmm. to why that is but um i was curious if 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 that is ringing any bells to you because I am notoriously terrible with remembering people's names. Yeah, me too. <laughs> okay. And it's very it's very common. And especially the situation that you that you told me about now, that you are in a room full of people that you don't know and you go around shaking hands and saying, Hello, my name is uh, Ilva and what's your name? And afterwards I don't remember their name at all. And and what happens is that uh, at this moment we are using our working memory and working memory has very limited capacity. So when we are shaking hands, we are probably using up that capacity for more important mm-hmm. stuff. Like, for instance, am I am I shaking uh, firmly enough? Uh, am I saying my name uh, right? Uh, what is he going to say next? Uh, oh, he works with this and that. That is interesting. Way more interesting than his name, of course, <laughs> <laughs> because uh, names are kind of random bits of information, which is not uh, the the other information is much more important. So our brain will naturally uh, prioritize that and just uh, kick that out of your working memory. <laughs> no, I, I'm very very good with faces. Mm-hmm. So I yeah. almost always remember, like, like if I know someone or not, even if I've just like met them, you know, once a mm. couple of years ago, I'm like, I, oh, yeah. I, I know them somehow. Um, so, so that makes so, so when I when I'm introduced with people, I'm just so interested about them as a person mm. that that their name is irrelevant to me, and I don't remember it because my brain doesn't find it important. Yeah, that that I makes think, sense. Yeah, that's. Uh... That's why. And that, that is true for, for a lot of people. And there are things that you can do to, to kind of improve uh, your, your memorization for, uh, for names in such situations. For instance, you can visualize something that their name reminds you of. So that, um, I don't know if uh, Ilva re- re- sounds like anything in English that you could <laughs> picture. I don't know. Uh, Nope. No, nothing. <laughs> but but my name my name is Guthrie, and that doesn't yeah. sound like anything either. So no, yeah. So we, then we could then we but could 
Should try to do something. Uh, yeah, you can uh, use something from there, the way people look. Uh, or if I know someone else whose name is Guthrie, then I picture that Guthrie uh, standing next to you and rubbing you, your, rubbing your hair or something. Mm. Uh, kind of makes it uh, uh, a little bit alive. And uh, are you yeah. tall? Uh, I'm quite short. Ah, that's too bad. Because I was thinking, because Ilva actually kind of sounds a little bit like Hill. Il, oh, like, yeah. So like mm. Hill, like Hilva instead. And I could pick, oh. so if you were tall, right? You'd be like a Hill. <laughs> oh, that would work better with my sister Hilda. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that so that way our names are a bit similar. <laughs> hey, yeah, I just realized that your names rhyme. Was that on purpose? Uh, no, actually not, uh, because in Norwegian they don't. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> there you go. Wait, wait. Can, say your you and your sister's names like correctly in Norwegian. Hilde and Ilva. Okay, okay. So they don't. Yeah. Not, hmm. not even close. Well, that. But yeah. But okay. back to the the memorization yes. of names. Uh, uh, Okay, so this is a technique that I sometimes use, uh, but I have to be very aware of it in order to have any use of it, because when you're in the, in the situation and you're nervous and things are happening very quickly, uh, sometimes you don't really get to think about it at all uh, anyway. And uh, the situation uh, may prohibit you standing there for a long time and just say, wait a minute, I'll just hold on to this handshake for a while while I picture you, you with a lot of cherries in your hair or <laughs> some rotten eggs falling all over you or something. It's very not very socially appropriate. So, so in many situations, this doesn't work, uh, I must say. So, uh, And then my advice is just to... Uh, to let it go and accept yeah. it and uh, and then ask again later and and show in that way you show interest in the person and you say hello we talked uh, I didn't quite get your name can you repeat that to me uh, and uh, yeah so just no, be I, honest Guthrie and let people know I, I always am I just, mostly, don't I just tell name. people I'm yeah. terrible at names and hope that they forgive me yeah all right, all right. I, I have a different question for you um, mm -hmm. which is, um, and you know, our podcast name is called human tech and, and, and so this connection of memory to, uh, something with technology always of interest to me. And, and so one of the things I was just having this conversation the other day about the research that I think exists, although I couldn't remember talking about remembering uh, a, a particular reference for it. So maybe I've made it up. But the idea that when you, um, it, it has to do with like taking notes. I mean, we, mm -hmm. like Guthrie and I, you know, we, uh, we do a lot of user research and we're interviewing people and we have to take notes or students in a class, you know, listening to a lecture and they have to take notes. And of course, these days, you know, most of the time we're taking notes by typing and mm. not and not by longhand. And the idea that when you write something down uh, in longhand by writing out the letters with a pen on paper, that you are processing it in a different way or in a different place or something about 
that processing of the information is different and therefore you remember it differently and or better than if you mm. are typing. So yeah. is there any research on that or am I just making it up? Um, I haven't got any research reference for that uh, in front of me now. So, uh, But I have a, I've heard that too and I can totally understand uh, how it might uh, improve memory because uh, when we're typing, either it is all like in one stream of uh, movements that are not very uh, differentiated in, with different words. But when we write in longhand, we are kind of making uh, more um, different movements for each word, probably. Yeah, slightly uh, bigger motor movements. You yes. Know, I mean, there is obviously motor movement when you're typing, but it's very mm. small. Yeah, and uh, and also it could have something to do with where you keep your attention while you're writing, um, because um, uh, writing on the paper you kind of uh, you, you have you at least I mostly I kind of look at where I write when I write with my uh, with a pencil. Uh, as opposed to when I'm typing on the computer. Yeah. I can oh, that's, that's right. That's very interesting. Yeah, when you're writing longhand, mm -hmm. you're visually engaged with the words. Yes. And if you're a fluid, fluent typist, if you're very mm -hmm. good at typing, you're right. You might not be looking at your hands or looking at the words on the screen as much. Well, that's why you can type faster. Than yeah, yeah. But, yeah. But then does that mean it's possible that it means that you're processing the information differently? So, yes. um, yeah, we need to, I'm going to have to try and find the research yeah. on that if it exists and, uh, and document mm. that. Maybe if anyone is uh, listening to the podcast that, that knows who did that research, or who has done it recently, um, yeah, write, write in and let us know. All right, now let's or, talk about forgetting. Yeah. Yes, forgetting, yeah. The other Wait, side I, of I, no, memory. No, I don't, I don't want to move on yet. You don't yeah, want to? Oh, because... I'm sorry, Guthrie. You need <laughs> you some more therapy? So, uh, no, 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 not, not for me. Okay. But so imagine, if you will, um, a future writing device that uses... Uh, a series of radar and cameras to know exactly where your fingers are in real time. Mm -hmm. And so imagine instead of writing on the paper, you you write with one finger or more, multiple fingers to write the letters. So uh -huh. you, can, you could do this right now to those of you listening at home. Pretend you're writing on paper, but close your eyes and just write your name, but in the air, right? In theory, mm -hmm. because you don't have to actually write it on paper or know, you know, that mm. you can write very, very fast on paper. The problem mm. is you don't know where you are vertically or horizontally. So you often, so if you don't look and you just write really fast, you're yeah. writing over other words. Do you think that perhaps that, let's just assume there is research that shows that um, you, uh, your memory is better if you write out longhand and it's not because you're typing faster and therefore there's more words per minute so you have less time to remember or anything but it's something about the physical motion of the mm -hmm. writing 
Um, do you think if you had, uh, if, if, if instead of typing everything, you were, you were writing longhand, but in front of a computer and that was like a way to write, do you think mm -hmm. that the, that would have a similar memory or do you, is it, is it about the actual, um, uh, looking on the paper or feeling the tactile motions on the yeah. paper, where you, or where you are on the page that might, is the difference. I think that uh, there are many modalities that could work together to uh, improve memorization um, in this case. So, uh, so just isolating the movements could be one modality, uh, but also writing it on the paper and seeing where your notes are in relation to the other things you've written. Uh, I think that really could also make a difference uh, so that uh, you kind of remember also, uh, so the page becomes a kind of context uh, in which you remember all the other stuff together. So, um, yeah, but I'm not sure. There, someone should do this, do this experiment. You know, I, and I, all right, I want to add another dimension to the same thing because um, uh, which which is the possibility that when you're writing... Uh, with pen and paper, it's uh, it's not as efficient as typing, and therefore mm. you must uh, summarize more. Yes, if you're going to be a good uh, note taker, and the process absolutely. of summarizing, you know, listening and then deciding what mm. to write down, right? And so there is an extra encoding. When I type, when I when I'm when we're doing user research and I'm typing, I have a tendency to type more words yeah. uh, than when I'm handwriting. And and Guthrie, I'm thinking about this because we just recently did a bunch of user research for a client in which I was writing by hand, and then we just did the other night some interviews for a different client, uh, for a different piece of work in which I was typing. And uh, if you look at my handwritten notes versus my typing, I tend in the typing to uh, have more word for word what they said. Because I can mm -hmm. type, you know, they're talking and I can, I can capture a lot of their exact words. So I am summarizing and processing it less. And I think think that that might be affecting it because when I'm handwriting it, I'm doing more encoding. Mm. Yes, uh, I think you have a point there too, uh, because um, yeah, memory works in that way naturally that it, uh, it captures some of the information. And uh, so our me memory has to prioritize and make some kind of mental notes uh, you have that expression in English as well to take a mental note or so, of something. Mm -hmm. Sure. Or, yeah. Uh, in Norwegian, we we have a saying that I'm writing it up behind my ear. <laughs> that is an expression <laughs> what, uh, of taking can, a mental can, note. Can you tell us that in Norwegian? Eskriver uh, Okay. Just for so, for our yeah. for our Norwegian audience. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> the huge Norwegian audience. We actually do have some people in Norway who listen, so. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. for sure. <laughs> and, uh, well, anyway, um, so, 
so memory is uh, is supposed to make the selection of what we experience. Uh, memory doesn't record everything as it happens, uh, like we are doing now with this uh, taping, this podcast. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, it's important, and and that also connects to what we are going to talk about, uh, forgetting, because forgetting is a very big part of memory in this way. Uh, yeah. So I could I should do some you know I teach um, uh, a usually one course each semester as an adjunct uh, instructor at University of Wisconsin a campus near me so I should uh, uh, run this experiment in my class you know where I take because the students in my class they take their notes. 99.9% mm -hmm. of the time on computer and keyboard. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I could perhaps, for you know... Mm. Or they are simply just uh, scrolling through Facebook. <laughs> um, yes, that's that too. But, uh, but if they're taking notes, they're doing it on the computer. But I could mm. separate the class where half of them, you know, I, I'll, I'm going to talk about a particular topic. Half of them take notes on using the computer and keyboard and then the other half uh, I force them to take notes by hand mm -hmm. um, and uh, we could see uh, who does better on the on the quiz you know who remembers the information better um, but yeah, yeah that, that would be wonderful all right so I want to know the I yeah to you want to know the answer okay <laughs> all right now here's here's so talking about strange research we've heard about uh, and this one, I probably, I, I don't have the reference at the top, on the top of my head, but I probably can find it because I think I wrote about it in one of my books, about the research that shows that when you go through a doorway that uh, you forget. Oh. <laughs> Do you know about that? No, I didn't know that. And, uh, and that it even works for virtual doorways. Uh -huh. yeah. So that that w when people are playing a video game, if they went through a virtual doorway in the game, that mm -hmm. they w there was more forgetting. Have you heard that? You haven't heard that, huh? Isn't that a strange thing? Yeah, that's very strange. It could be related to the same effect as in context-dependent memory, in that that you enter a new space and you kind of right. uh, wipe the space clean, so to speak, and uh, and so you make space for a new. A uh, new exploration <laughs> or something. This is uh, this is be, the, uh, yeah. you open the fridge and you forgot what you were looking for. You're on your phone and you walk through and you're like, why why am I in this room? Yeah, there are That's... many things going on then, but uh, yeah, that could be. Uh, yeah, I haven't thought of it thought of it like that, but you know, there's these uh, place cells and grid cells uh, in the hippocampus and just outside the hippocampus, in an area called the entorhinal cortex, and these grid cells are uh, firing uh, at specific locations in an environment. Uh, to kind of map the environment that we are moving through. And it is uh, uh, thought that these, um, uh, these grid cell connected environments kind of feed into memory so as to, uh, to connect memories to space, uh, which is an important feature of uh, episodic memories. Um, mm -hmm. when, you, when you remember something from your life, uh, something that you have experienced, uh, it almost always happens in a space, uh, not 
flying around in an empty uh, area. So, uh, so space is very, very important mm. for episodic memories. So, uh, and uh, the research of Edward and Maybrit Moser, who won the Nobel Prize in Medicine or Physiology a few years ago for this discovery, uh, they have studied this phenomenon extensively, uh, extensively in in rats, and they show that uh, when the rat enters an, a new environment, it kind of um, starts anew with the same um, grid cells, uh, can uh, then start to map a new environment. Mm. So maybe going into crossing a door is a kind of a cue to the brain that ah, to the grid system, right? New environments, right. so the grid cells are just uh, uh, restarting or something. So mm. yeah, it's very interesting, but this is very speculative, I must say. <laughs> so what do you think is some of the most interesting things we know about forgetting? Well, I think the most interesting thing is a very old fact uh, that stems from the 19th century uh, and the research of Hermann Ebbinghaus from Germany. And uh, you have probably heard of. I love right? I love talking to someone who just know you know puts out all these names because these are. <laughs> I have to say that that the study of memory when I first um, it you know in my in my learning career in psychology uh i when i was an undergraduate in college i got a very heavy dose of behaviorism and operant conditioning because i happened to mm -hmm. go to a school where that was still very much in vogue when many other schools had given up on it um so when i went to graduate school was when i was really studying cognitive psychology and le learning all about you know all of this stuff and so i I just love all this. So it's great. Yes, I know who Ebbinghaus is, and it's great to talk to someone who does. Guthrie, of course, you know who Ebbinghaus is, right? No. Um, he forgot. Ebbing, <laughs> Ebbinghaus, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Ebbinghaus, yeah. yeah. Ebbinghaus, yeah. <laughs> it's somewhere deep inside your memory, somewhere. <laughs> Probably not. Okay, yeah. so tell us what you're going to say. Yeah, well, uh, Ebbinghaus was kind of, he was the father of modern memory research, actually, and by studying forgetting. And and he was, uh, he set a task of trying to uh, find out what happens to memories over time and how fast do we forget. Uh, so he devised this very special uh, system that he applied to himself. Uh, because this task was enormous. So I, uh, I think he understood that he, he could not possibly ask anyone else to do this for him. Like we do today, we recruit uh, research subjects to, to memorize stuff and then we measure their memory. But Ebbinghaus, he did all this to himself. And what he did was that he devised this uh, kind of this uh, nonsense uh, word system uh, made out of uh, one syllable uh, nonsense words that had no meaning to him in any language that he knew and then he kind of devised these long lists of these nonsense words and uh, randomly and then he started to memorize them and he measured how long it took him to memorize the list in the first place and then he measured how how long it took him to relearn the list again later after various time intervals so 
So he did this for quite a lot of time. Like three months later, he was testing himself for uh, some random list that he had memorized. And uh, and yeah, uh, it says in his dissertation that he went to great lengths to try to keep uh, very exciting experiences out of his life during the time of his experiments so that it would not kind of contaminate his memories. <laughs> so he led a very boring life during all of this. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he really sacrificed himself for science. And uh, and, and uh, what it showed was that forgetting is uh, really quick in the beginning, just during the first few hours and day, uh, a lot of information is lost, as long as it's not something that is meaningful and that you can associate with. So uh, I just yeah, want so you to know, I just want you to know, while you were talking, I, I remembered something. Oh. And then I went to look to, make, to see whether my memory was right. So, uh, Guthrie, on, in, in my 100 Things Every Designer Needs to Know About People book, page 58 is uh, figure 25.1, Herman Hebbinghaus's forgetting curve. So I yeah. have, I talk about it and I have a picture of his curve. Uh, mm -hmm. Guthrie, you will like this. R equals E to the one, to the minus, no, to the minus one fifth power. So uh, Guthrie being, a, uh, he has a degree in economics, so he likes all that mathematical stuff. All the numbers, so. yeah. Yes. Yeah, because this is, and also what his research showed was that uh, you could actually turn memory into something that you can count and that you can measure in this way and that can turn into such wonderful graphs. So uh, <laughs> That I can put in my book 100 years later. How's that? <laughs> or more than 100 uh, years later. But not in the hairy that well. <laughs> so, um, yeah. To, all right. What about, uh, do you cover in your book anything about um, forgetting and memory and sleep? Um, we are not so much, but I think we, uh, if, I, if I remember correctly, <laughs> we do mention that uh, sleep problems uh, is often a cause of memory problems. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, there are so many uh, exciting, uh, there's so, so much exciting research going on uh, uh, these days about memory and sleep. Uh, so both in humans and in animal research, uh, because the way neurons uh, act during sleep when we remember or forget something is not something that is easy to research in humans. So one can uh, study the memories are uh, treated during sleep, uh, and uh, that is. Uh, really interesting how uh, some some memory traces are uh, being singled out to be kept for later storage to be mm. consolidated during sleep while other pieces of information are discarded. Mm. Uh, so this kind of active forgetting process that uh, actively um, attacks memory traces when we sleep. So that's also important for um, yeah. 
And what do you think about the the new technology that supposedly supposedly being created that would erase memories that already exist? Yeah. That is very exciting research that is going on in animals at this time, uh, where they can kind of trace where the memory traces are uh, created during a specific episode and then targeting that. Um, I'm not very uh, concerned that this technology will be used in humans because our memories are so complex and they are not kind of limited to one strict uh, memory network that can be isolated in the hippocampus. So mostly these uh, lines of research are done in order to understand how memory works uh, and not as measures to actually uh, tamper with people's memories. Uh, okay. But so, it sounds very cool. <laughs> so if a person's memory, we'll just say is 100 mm-hmm. in complexity, what's like some other animals? If you oh. had to give them an, just like a ball, like, like is a cat's memory like like is it a five is it a 95 like how much more complex uh, are we i i can't guess that at all (laughs) (laughs) but uh, of course this is a very big debate in memory uh, research Uh, what kind of memories do animals have and how comparable are they to human memories uh, in terms of uh, uh, experiential uh, details and clarity and vividness and sensory experiences, etc. And can uh, can a cat have a personal memory from its past where it kind of remembers that time when it met that very nice uh, <laughs> other cat somewhere, <laughs> or yeah. or that time or is it that just like a good feeling that it gets? Or, yeah, exactly. So, um, so I think that uh, based on what I know, I would land on the latter that they don't have these specific episodic memories that are uh, in their consciousness and tied to a specific time and place, like humans have. Um, but of course, uh, when we talk about these memories that are being switched on and off in the hippocampus of mice, uh, these are also uh, they are very simple in the for, in the because they are designed to be very simple so that they are easy to follow. Uh, so it is um, uh, yeah. So uh, giving a mouse a memory is can be something that is uh, kind of a bit reductionist. It's like uh, it rem- it kind of remembers that it got an electric shock to its paws in a specific cage, for instance, and that is a memory. Um, whereas in humans, we would call that an implicit memory, like kind of a bodily memory that we don't really, we don't really need to remember that we got a shock to our feet in a specific area to avoid that area, <laughs> kind of, it's a kind of automatic reaction. Uh, so, so yeah, it's, uh, uh, it's, very complex and difficult to because we can't ask these animals yeah. how do you remember what what were you thinking and feeling when you remembered this did you have kind of like a flashback of that cage and that uh, tiny electrical 
uh, shock that you got before or what happened? So, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it is interesting because like cat, you know, cats and dogs, they can be very habit oriented, you know? So I have two cats and when it's about nighttime, they will, you know, jump on my bed and look at me like, let's, let's go. It's time to cuddle in bed now. Right. Mm. Um, and so, but, and so they, they seem to have some idea of like what the habit is and where they're supposed to be. Mm. Um, you know, or, you know, you make the couple steps towards the place where they get fed and they'll, mm. you know, they perk up and then they, you know, scamper over towards the, you know, the food area. Um, and it's very hard, you know, so clearly they're very smart at knowing the context clues about when the human does the three steps to the right and turns in a certain direction mm. only that only happens when it's the food time and i know it's the food time so I, but like does you know but what exactly what that experience is like for a cat is, yeah, yeah I, I could imagine that would be very difficult can i tell you my own personal theory yes please so I have a theory about what an experience is life is like for um, moderately intelligent pets like cats and dogs. Mm -hmm. And so, um, have you ever played sports? Are there any sports that you play? Uh, like, no, what's team, a hobby? Not team sports, but uh, I've done gymnastics. Uh, sure, oh, gymnastics. And, uh, running. Gymnastics is, yeah. perfect. gymnastics is perfect. Um, so pick any sort of gymnastics uh, move that you can do. Is mm -hmm. there is there one in mind? First of all, I'd love to hear what um, you guys call, because uh, because I, I did gymnastics back when I was like eight in gym mm -hmm. class, and um, uh, so for example, we have uh, there's a thing called a cartwheel. Oh, uh, cartwheel, cartwheel. Yeah, yeah, it yeah. makes no sense. So there was like um, that's so that that's like uh, but let's let's. Let's pick uh, pick one where you're where you're like jumping to a different place. Okay, or I'm jumping. Okay, okay. Yeah, uh... right, jumping or grabbing at a certain mm -hmm. time, right? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, you know, so and and not and it, in so you have like maybe half a second to kind of do the motion that you whatever the motion is. Okay, now put yourself in that exact. For me, it's basketball. So. You know that exact moment when I'm doing kind of a layup mm. uh, to to put the ball in. It's it's definitely mostly automatic, but it's not entirely. You know, like mm -hmm. you exist like literally in that millisecond of time where you're conscious and you're thinking, but you're not really thinking about anything. You're like you just exist in that moment. And my theory is that that is the mode that pets walk around in all day all the time oh is hmm. that is just that that one like just in that last little second and so um you know so they're so so like they're happy and they're happy uh and they're you know they're they'll they'll catch things or they're sleepy or but it's it's just that's like as close as as humans can get to experiencing like what they're going through at all times so they're not thinking in this meta way that humans are always thinking about kind of in a meta you know where you got stuff going on they're just living completely like in the moment so that that's my theory yeah yeah, you should talk to uh, another Norwegian that uh, is uh, um, publishing his book in English uh, coming up. 
His name is uh, Lars Fredrik Svensson, and he writes about uh, what animals think about. Mm. Uh, and he's a philosopher, so he uses a lot of philosophical uh, viewpoints to try to explain how life is experienced by animals. Uh, yeah, I think that's. Does that uh, mean we'd have to change change the name of our podcast to Animal Tech? Yes. <laughs> Instead of human tech, <laughs> because we humans, we are animals, so it's oh, uh, that's right, yeah. we are, yeah. <laughs> and of course, we can't we can't stand above animals completely in trying to understand ourselves, because that would be like thinking that we are gods or something. Uh, but still, there there is this, um, of course, this need to understand what it is about humans that are that is different from animals and one of these things we think is kind of this episodic uh, mental time travel that we have that we can kind of consciously travel back in time and recreate experiences uh, in a meaningful way and also that we can use this to to make meaningful plans for the future that we can uh, construct scenarios that allow us to travel forward into into the future of possibilities uh, yeah, and in a, and a much I, greater extent, at least, than animals do. And I and I do think, yeah, I it's it is interesting to think about, you know, and it, either either looking at it from the point of view of what makes us different from other animals, or looking at it from the point of view of well, you know what makes us different from, for instance, robots or or mm. you know other kinds of machines. Uh, and I think we we un often or it's easy to underestimate how our senses and the differences in our senses interact with things like memory and mm -hmm. and uh, pro you know mental processing. I'm reminded of a of um, some of the research on uh, dogs and their sense of smell and the mm -hmm. idea that. Um, uh, because I, I I was commenting to someone how uh, I was dog sitting for someone and uh, at at a certain you know at a very specific time of day, uh, which was like you know five minutes before uh, the owner came home, uh, the dog who had been just lying around sleeping all day and doing absolutely nothing would all of a sudden get up, be very alert and go to the door and wait. And this was in an apartment building in a city. So it's not like they heard the car coming down the street, you know, and I, I'm a psychologist. I can't help study, you know, any kind of animal behavior. So a couple of days, you know, I was, I was house sitting during the day and watching this for a couple of days and, you know, it was like, it seemed like almost exactly timed, you know, to the, it's like, you know, 515, there they are. How do they know that the owner has gotten off the train, you know, six blocks away and is going to walk in at a certain time? Um, and then I heard this research w about the fact that, um, uh, you know, dogs, we know their sense of smell is so good that that the uh, all the particles in the air, you know, the hairspray, the perfume, the makeup, whatever that had been put on in the morning, it, it you know, moves in the air currents throughout the day in the room. And 
when the smell changes or when the, you know, those particulates can no longer be smelled or something, you know, there's like a sensory cue that that means it's time for the owner to come home. And so it might not be at all the fact that they're telling time, you know, it's just that all the odors have finally left the room in a way that, you know, we humans can't tell, but the animals Mm -hmm. can tell. So I I think uh, we have to be careful when, (laughs) When we're when we're talking about what animals experience, I think we have a tendency to to put our species experiences, you know, kind of extrapolate to all yeah. all the other species. Um, but yeah, it's it and does of course, uh, smell. It's also a very important memory trigger. It is a very a very interesting memory trigger, right? Mm-hmm. And and um, do you want to just about that? You have a theory uh, about that? What is that? Yeah. Uh, it's that uh, smell is so uh, specific sometimes. Or you can you can trigger a, a very specific memory to a very specific smell. Um, because uh, smell is not very verbalizable. So you can't kind of put a label on all these different smells so that they enter into a kind of abstract memory network like you can do with things that are visual or uh, things that are verbal or things like that. So that, uh, and all these things that are connected to an episode enter into a memory network. And when something matches that parts of that memory network, it can get reactivated. That's how we uh, get these kind of involuntary memories that we are reminded of things. And, uh, and so smell is a very specific cue into a memory network uh, that is not shared with very many other episodes in our lives. So so I can experience this when I make uh, Norwegian uh, meatballs. <laughs> this very, if I get the, the recipe very particularly right, uh, it smells just like my grandma's meatballs. Mm. And then I get this Proust moment that all these uh, summers at my grandma's house come flooding back to my memory. But not other times when I make the same meatballs, it doesn't work. So <laughs> that's interesting. So I I want to thank you so much for coming on. Can you tell tell us once more um, uh, the name of the book? Yeah, it's called Adventures in Memory: The Science and Secrets of Remembering and Forgetting, and it's out uh, Tuesday, 9th of October. Yeah, I was gonna say it's just about to come yeah. out. So you, but you, it can be pre-ordered, I would think, right? Absolutely. If people yes. want to go get it right away, they can do that. Um, yeah. Uh, Ilva, it's so wonderful to have you on. Uh, I'm sorry we missed your sister Hilda and. Uh, Maybe we can have you guys come back on um, when Hilda's available, and so we can meet her too, and she can she can refute yeah. all the things you said about her, <laughs> and tell That's she'll tell us stories to. about you instead. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and if people want to reach you, what's the best way to get hold of you? Uh, you can reach me uh, uh, either through our publisher Greystone. Or you can reach me on email, uh, which is uh, my name with just an O instead of the Norwegian letter and gmail.com uh, or through my university website. 
Uh, and you can follow me on Instagram and uh, see pictures from our tour in Canada and the United States. Wonderful. That would be lovely. So if, uh, and then if you would uh, uh, send me a note with, with that information, I'll include it when we, when I, we'll, we'll write a blog post about this and I'll include the contact information in it. So uh, thank you very much. And a year from now, we'll come back and see if we remember anything about the conversation. I know. I, know. I won't remember anything. Of my... I remember the dogs. I'll remember your face. That's for sure. All right. There oh, you go. Uh, but he won't remember your name. Just, just so you know. All right. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for having me.